Ladies and gentlemen, hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. What does it do, if anything? Is this as big of a victory as Democrats are making it out? Not bad, it's not bad. But we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Later on in the show, I'm going to respond to popular Twitch streamer and YouTuber Vosh, uh, who is basically going to be serving as a proxy for a viewpoint held by many people left of center with regards to Democrats embracing the Pied Piper strategy, especially with candidates who are staunchly pro-life. And we will get into whether or not I think the Pied Piper strategy is a tenable one when it comes to this particular issue. The answer may or may not surprise you. The person I am going to be using as our unlikely hero today most certainly will because it's like absolutely one of the ghouls of this show. So who is that ghoul? Oh, so much to come. But first, first, uh, as you can see, I've got the guitar here. Why do I have the guitar here? This is for a couple of special Patreons. Uh, supporters here. If you want to go and support the show here, you can go to patreon.com slash DWATG. But I wanted to start the show with a little special something for y'all. Right. One, two, oh, one, two, three, four. If you're looking for me, you better check under that seat. Cause that is where you'll find me Underneath the sea lab Underneath that water sea lab At the bottom of the sea I duffed a couple of chords there, but you get it. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Alright, let's uh, put the guitar away here for now. Who knows? Maybe uh, maybe the mood will strike me and we'll write a Joe Biden song. Won't, won't, wouldn't that be neat? Probably not. It probably wouldn't be neat is the the answer to that. Um, Joe Biden, known by some as Dark Brandon, not going to be known as Dark Brandon on this show. I, I don't think we're going to go there. Um, but Joe Biden and his team did manage to get something important across the finish line here. Uh, his team being loosely the team of Democrats, the gerontocrats that we often make fun of on this show here. What they were able to get across the finish line here is something called the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I, I just want to start on the name. I'm going to give them points on the name here. Uh, why am I giving them points on the name? Do I care a lot about inflation? No, but they needed to get Manchin on board. So in order to get Manchin on board, they like basically let Manchin talk about inflation. My number one issue is inflation. I care about inflation, 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 inflation. And then they named something the Inflation Reduction Act so that Manchin can absolutely go back to his voters and say it's reducing inflation. Is it going to reduce inflation? Marginally. I mean, this is just simply not a big enough bill for me to like reasonably believe that this is going to reduce inflation. But like, let's talk about what's in the bill. Democrats put out a one sheet tonight. 
Um, so we're just going to go off their little one sheet here. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 will make a historic down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation, invest in domestic energy production and manufacturing, and reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. I think if you are left to center and you're happy about anything in this bill, the thing you're happy about, and you know, maybe you got a point here, is uh, this this thing involving reducing carbon emissions by 40%, nothing to sneeze at, right? If it actually comes to pass. The bill will also finally allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices uh, and extend the expanded Affordable Care Act program for three years through 2025. Um, I, the If Medicare can actually negotiate prescription drug prices coming off of this in like a pretty hands-free way... That would be huge for millions of Americans. Let's let's keep it real, especially retirees and also people who are on Medicare who really need the medicine. The proposal for FY 2022's budget reconciliation bill will invest approximately $300 billion in deficit reduction and $369 billion in energy security and climate change programs over the next 10 years. So... I guess what I'm really interested in is the deficit reduction program, which is essentially $30 billion a year. What does that do? Um, also, these big numbers, by the way, people, um, especially if you're a Democrat and you're calling them. Remember, you got to cut them by 10. You got to cut them by 10 because it's annual. So, like, if this is a huge advantage, we're talking about $28 billion for prescription drug pricing reform. We're talking about $31 billion. Um, in terms of a 15% minimum corporate tax, 15%. I know that a lot of global, like a lot of economies around the globe have pretty low corporate tax rates, but like, man, 15% just feels so low. Carry interest loophole, uh, they're closing. They, they claim, and that's, if they, what they claim is only getting 1 billion a year. I'm interested in that one. I'm interested in that one. IRS tax enforcement's getting an additional $12 billion a year. Who is that going to go and target? God, devil might be in the details there. And then we have an additional 30, about $40 billion a year for energy security and climate change. Um, potentially very interesting. Affordable Care Act in, uh, extension is $6 billion annually. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. That would actually have to be divided by three, so it's like $12 billion a year. So total deficit reduction, um, which they're making sure to really you know highlight here, is $30 billion a year. That makes you wonder what's getting cut. Um, they're saying some of that's being offset by tax income, and that might be true. I hope it is. I hope it is. Um, but like, let's just finish off their one sheet, and then we'll kick it to um, some analysis. Enacts historic deficit reduction to fight inflation. Okay, I, I mean, like, what does that mean? What is it? Man, historic. Like, like, literally every day is history. Every, right, this is a historic podcast. It's the 551st episode of Don't Worry About the Government. There has never been a 551st episode. Might be the best 551st episode you've ever heard of anything. Uh, who knows? Uh, really, it's certainly historic because uh, on July 28th of uh, the year of our Lord 2022, no one else has done it. 
I hate historic. Uh, like you, I, I like historic. I almost feel like needs citation at the bottom. Needs a footnote. Lower energy costs increases cleaner production and reduces carbon emissions by roughly forty percent by twenty thirty. Now, if that is top line forty percent, that would be amazing. But now, like as we've done the numbers on this bill, that doesn't feel right, does it? It doesn't. Like, it, was it really that easy? Really, we could have, we could have done it for this cheap. I don't know. I don't know. That I believe that allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices and caps out of pocket costs to two thousand um, dollars. If, if that's annually in terms of out of pocket for prescription drug costs, um, that's pretty pr transformative stuff. Um, actually capping that um, so that people have a hard dollar amount that they know that they can't go over. That'd be huge. Um, I like again. I, I I will wait to, wait and see wait and see. Um, but that would be that would be a good thing. Lowers ACA healthcare premiums for millions of Americans. I'll probably be a beneficiary of that one next year. Um, given the way this year's going. Uh, by the way, lost my part time job. So if you want to sub up over at patreoncom slash dwatg, uh, a buck a show would certainly help. Uh, more now more than ever. Just like what Nixon used to say. Uh, the biggest corporations and the ultra wealthy will pay their fair share. There, there's no it, like if you're just listening and you're like waiting for like what does that mean? I have no idea. It's just like a thing they say. There are no new taxes on families making four hundred thousand dollars or less. Oh, thank heavens! Me and the wifey who are both making two hundred k a year, we're gonna be okay. Thank God. Um. As I get older and older, I really appreciate how ridiculous it is that like we create this like stupid like debate line in the tax code of like families making four hundred thousand dollars. You realize making four hundred thousand dollars a year would make you a one percenter in this country. Like, like the median income in this country for an individual is. I, I'm gonna just do this off the top of my head. Someone hit me with fact check off of this. The median income. I am going to say as of 2022 is $38,500. Love to see where I'm at on that. Maybe, yeah, $38,500. So like, you know, get two of you, you know, the household being two, generally speaking, I know, progressive. Um, but like, uh, you know, we're talking about $80,000 a year for the median income. So like, you'd be making you would be making what not even five times ten times that amount uh no five times five times math is hard i you know music is is my passion yeah eight times five is 40 music is my passion i love music math <laughs> all right uh i mean who then there's no overlap don't don't tell me there's um okay so let's move on to the inf inf inflation reduction act the ira uh, which I'm sure tickles Joe Biden's funny bone. Because um, it's like the only thing he still remembers is that he hates English because of the Irish stuff and his mom being Irish. On Wednesday, Joe Manchin put out a statement. This is from Vox. In support of a new compromise, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a deeply scaled back version of Build Back Better. Like that, That's what this really is. Like We are crawling about this as a giant win. But what the Democrats are doing, and I'll give them credit, it's marketing push is not bad because it like snookered me initially until I started looking into it. I was like, oh, you just repackaged and scaled back, build back better to get something else passed in the year 2022. I, just waiting to see if that actually helps him in the polls. Interested to see if that helps him in the polls because it's like just saying you pass something, 
people want to see stuff in their hand, and I don't know what's going to be in their hand off of this. Um, I, I mean, I, I, they, what they're hoping is the gas prices are going to keep coming down, which they have been, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. What's in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022? Latest compromise, compromise, includes, and, and like the way this is framed too, is it's mansion negotiating with the Democrats, includes the previously agreed upon health care provisions as well as a 15% corporate minimum tax cut, proposal to close the carried at, uh, interest tax loophole, and a provision for IRS enforcement. Additionally, it contains spending for energy security and climate change with few specifics about what that entails. Manchin, in his statement, alluded to investments that help the U.S. decarbonize and new funding for multiple energy sources, including fossil fuels and renewable energy. All told, it will be $739 billion in revenue over 10 years, so an additional $73 billion annually, $74 billion, let's round up, and invest for only 43% of it, uh, $43 billion annually in spending and reducing the deficit by $300 billion over 10 years. Woo-hoo. Uh, yeah. Manchin made support uh, shortly after the CHIPS bill passed through the Senate. Um, I wish I had prepped more on this, but let me just say this. One, um, when this bill was being passed, there was much ado about how Nancy Pelosi is a huge holder of NVIDIA stock. Full disclosure, as am I. Um, NVIDIA is like just a huge semiconductor producer. And like we live in a world filled with semiconductors. I, I mean, I've been holding semiconductor. I've held this NVIDIA position for several, like almost half a decade at this point. Um, and like, I guess the point is like holding semiconductors is not wildly unreasonable um I, like for an individual to hold and i i don't necessarily attribute nefariousness to this um what i think needs to happen and i've talked about this before on the show but but i'll, I'll reiterate my position on this is that essentially people in congress should not be allowed to hold anything other than market-wide etfs um and, and i'm even somewhat suspect on that i i would almost say a blind trust that has them positioned in an etf uh, one of the many etfs but they don't know which one it is so they don't know if like let's say it's blackstone or they don't know if it's bank capital like they don't know vanguard um who has that etf so that they can't even be in contact with them i think i'm okay with that i i, I you, you i don't begrudge anyone still trying to make some degree of passive income and i think there's a way a lawmaker can do it without it biasing their law decisions where i think that the obvious conflict here is and then look this is why nancy pelosi attracts the trouble that she does with this right it is that nvidia like i i have a problem with people having discrete stocks um we have just seen so much with congressional stock tracker uh how you if you, if you follow that and i do on a regular basis is useful stock information how these guys get positions in stocks knowing that they're gonna do some stuff on stocks or that something's in the works and like you know looking ahead or whatever i mean like you start looking at those buys and you start looking at what's coming down the pike. There is a correlation here. Um, there are little surreptitious about it. You got to like play the long game. It's not going to be like, oh, I looked at it on Tuesday and then on Friday did a corrupt thing. No, it's a little bit more subtle than that. But you'll see trends. You'll see trends. Uh, you'll see who's open with their disclosures and who's not. And you start to get a picture of like what's going on here. 
Um, I think owning individual discrete stocks uh, remains a huge problem here. And so when this chip act was coming down the pike, um, everyone was like, oh, wow, NVIDIA is going to be a huge beneficiary of this because Pelosi's holding a huge uh, portion of this. And yes, NVIDIA's stock price um, has gone up because of it, but it appears that the big beneficiary here is Intel. But like, what is really going on with the CHIPS Act? The CHIPS Act is somewhere between a necessary domestic move and a foreign policy move. Necessary domestic move in the sense that like, uh, our country runs on semiconductors, baby. And so is the whole world. Um, that's not going to change. Uh, but there, there's no uh, full. I, like, there's semi, like, there's just, just semiconductors. That's all there is. Uh, and the first mover in a lot of different specialized semiconductor things, and this is the other part of the story that you're seeing coming down the pike, is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Uh, a company I have had positions on in the past, do not currently. And the the reason I have is because they are a worldwide leader and like a singular maker in a number of these semiconductor things. This means that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, represents strategic importance to the global supply chain. This is why Pelosi and a congressional delegation is going to Taiwan. I mean, yes, they're worried about Taiwan, but like the, if, I mean, and there are nuances to things that they're worried about with Taiwan. Sure, of course. But like a priority item is the semiconductor manufacturing that is happening in Taiwan. And the Chinese have expressed interest in capturing TSMC. Um, you can see how this would tilt the balance of access to semiconductors in the free world um, in a substantial way. Yeah, NVIDIA and Intel would stand to gain on that. But like, here's the bigger issue is that like they're not poised to actually fully fill the vacuum. Um, that could take some time. Um, that would be really bad. So the CHIPS Plus Act, I look at it as... I mean, I want to, I'll have to, of course, see more of what's in it. And if y'all see something that's of interest to you that you want me to like kind of weigh in on, please let me know. I want, I do want to know more about this because I think it's a really important piece of legislation. My initial impression though of the Chips Plus Act, um, again, not fully prepped on this show today, but I want to mention it since we had it in the article here, is that let's roll with it. Let's roll with it. Um, protect Taiwan. Uh, I, I, I mean, in particular, uh, the way we have not done anything in Ukraine has made the Taiwan situation even more precarious because I think Chinese is the China and the Chinese government, Chinese, uh, the Chinese government people, um, the Chinese government has looked at the way we have dithered in Ukraine and the Western world has dithered in Ukraine and they are licking their chops at those manufacturing hubs that the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation has. So... Chips Plus Act might actually be some fairly forward-looking legislation, and it's good that it got passed. Um, or if it gets signed in, finally, um, it will be good that it is. Um, however, uh, let us yeah to pass the Senate with bipartisan support. McConnell had threatened to put a hold on it if the Democrats pursued reconciliation. With chips over to the House, the Democrats basically did pursue Build Back Better via reconciliation. Um, and getting... Mansion on board with reconciliations. The other thing that's had my eyebrow up about this, like, is this little build back better scale back thing just basically another one of these like 
shady infrastructure deals. It kind of feels like it. Chips is good. That there's been a lot of crowing about. Oh, did Schumer just McConnell McConnell? M- maybe does McConnell let himself get McConnelled very often? Is that a thing that like we're familiar with? Hmm. Um, and meanwhile, the Senate parliamentarian is still around. So this still has to get submitted to Elizabeth McDonough for review this Wednesday evening. And she'll determine whether the policies have sufficient impact on taxing and spending to qualify for a vote via budget reconciliation. Fire her. Fire her. Uh, this comes more than a year after Senate Democrats first reached a $3.5 trillion agreement on a reconciliation package. Um, now they have a much skinnier version of it that they're bringing to fruition. Biden people, is this a win? It doesn't feel like a win. And I even like when I was setting this up, I kind of actually pitched it as like, oh, is this a win? The more I read about this, and I'm doing this in real time, like I actually didn't pre-read that Vox article before this. I I had the one sheet up, but I I didn't read. And I'd like sort of thumbed it, but like haven't done my thinking really prior to the show here. Does that feel like awesome? Kind of feels like Mansion like drove the car here a little bit again. I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I'm seeing a lot of dark Brandon rising sort of energy around this, and I don't know that I don't know that I believe that that that, that we necessarily meet the muster here. Um, so I want to talk about some. I want to change gears here a little bit. I, I guess this is actually kind of gets back. It, it's related, right? Like all this stuff's related. Midterm elections are coming up. And there is a real interesting debate going on about these primary candidates in the midterm elections. And I think this will also affect the Republican presidential primary as well. And I want to weigh in on some commentary that I saw. Uh, I, one of the pieces of media I can see, like I like Majority Report a lot. Um, and I watch Vosh's stream on a pretty regular basis. At least I have been as I've been doing my little data entry job. Might be changing now that I'm uh, not working there. I don't know if you heard about that. I, I'm not working there anymore. Uh, they've been wonderful to me. They just reduced all part-time contractors. So I'm out of there in the middle of the month. But as I was working there over the last couple of years, you know, I started watching Vosh on a regular basis because he was on when I was doing you know my little data entry thing. And like, it's good to get some new people into your mix. You know, like here's some different viewpoints, all of that. Um, I was listening to him do some commentary the other day. Uh, and he started going in on the Democrats doing a Pied Piper strategy here in the 2022 primaries. And at first blush, my thought was, huh, you know, he's got a point here. This Pied Piper thing sort of really blew up in the Democrats' face in 2016. Like, we saw what happened with Trump. It was a disaster. Like, it it, it was real bad, y'all. Uh, so, yeah, like, okay, all right, hear this out. And actually, what I'm going to do here, uh, I guess sort of an homage to the Voshian format, is I, we're going to play some of his commentary, and then we're going to weigh in, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back to doing my thing, because I, look, I, I appreciate the new, the new styles and stuff, but like, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do this at any other time, other than at like 2 in the morning. And I don't really want to get a chat up, and I also don't, eh, 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 like, I, li- I like just being here, vibing. Knowing that you're there, because you always get back to me, uh, but but we vibe. We vibe in the quiet of the evening hours. 
All right, let's uh let, let's put let's put on a little voshy vosh and see see what the dude has to say. Um, you know, and this is another guy who's emblematic of this thought process here. So you know, it's like like I want to make it clear, I'm not picking on Vosh today. Uh, Vosh good, Vosh good. I like Vosh. Uh, you know, he, there's no homage to his little Vosh bad thing. Vosh is good. Uh, I don't agree with everything he has to say. Some of it misses me. Eh, the guns thing, not my jam. Don't know that I'm there with him on that. Um, but like, you know, a lot of what he has to say is good. And I think he's certainly trying to do his best to help make a better version of the Democratic Party. So like, this is sort of uh, an exchange in what I'm going to try to do is extremely good faith here. Um, let's get Vosh up and let us see what the man had to say. Politically ineffective in the sense that um, despite the fact that the Republican Party defines itself by being against good things and for bad things, and the Democratic Party uh, defines itself by being largely in favor of good things, but slow and ineffectual, you know, this feels like it should be a slam dunk electorally, like it really, it really shouldn't be much room for disagreement. We keep finding these little ways the Democratic Party makes itself, um, you know, um, evidently incompetent. And I saw some discourse on Twitter about this particular bit of incompetence. Uh, so, like, the top line here is, this sounds like this show. Like, like dude, we're, we agree. Uh, uh, you know, like, I, oh, what can I say? Like, like th this is why I watch. No, I agree with him on this. Like, this top line take that the Democrats have what seems like a layup going into this midterm, despite some of the fundamentals I talked about on the previous episode here. Uh, you know, on, on 550, I kind of get into, like, what are some things working against Biden right now that historically have been real problems for politicians going into midterm elections? And I don't, I mean, we're in different times, but, like, not that different. Yeah, we covered that last time. Um, but, no, like, the, the January 6th thing? No, they've completely mishandled that. They should have been able to basically marginalize the Republican Party over the last couple of years and make them seem like absolute extremists. And then when they passed Roe versus Wade, they should have been out there saying, see, this is what we've been warning you all about. Joe Biden has not been to a single protest. Gotta take those naps. Um, so like, yeah, no, like uh, th there's a completely different way that the Democrats could be handling this they're not handling it that way and like yeah no it sucks like this is absolute mid mid is being generous to the way that this administration performs um a couple days ago so i thought i'd talk about it democrats spend millions on republican primaries now this in and of itself is not that exceptional um when we're talking Republican primaries, that is. This is an important point. This is really not exceptional. And I am going to get into a specific example on this here in a bit. And God help me. I have to cite someone as the unlikely here. I'm like building up to this. This isn't going to be fun for me, but we're going to do it. All right, all right, continuing. Just to say, battles between Republicans on who will come out on top and face a Democrat in the general, you know, the idea of Democrats sowing dissent and causing trouble by, 
you know, picking the wrong guy. It's, you know, it's not entirely unheard of. Um, there are examples of instances where a candidate will be less popular within a party, but potentially more popular outside of their party and vice versa. So a good example of this might be like Bernie Sanders, right? Bernie Sanders, in my opinion, has a much better ability to pull in independents and potentially even some Republicans than Biden did. But Biden ended up dominating Bernie in the primary because he was stronger within the party potentially not as strong outside of the party. Trump had a similar effect. You know, you often see these battles between more or less extreme candidates, uh, populists versus institutionalists, so on. Oh, no, no, King Jar Jerk, don't you go spoiling now. We do have another issue, all right? Political groups and nonprofits aligned with the Dems have spent nearly $44 million on advertising campaigns across five states' Republican primaries to boost the profile of far-right candidates in California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Maryland. So essentially... All right. So this is a thing where I think he and I would basically agree on. Like He is going to make a broader statement about not liking this across the board. That's where we're going to disagree. But where I want to point uh, that I agree on is several of these states are not great candidates for this. Like, do we need to do this in California to win an election in California? That seems weird to me. I don't know that that washes. Do we need to do this in Colorado to win an election in Colorado? Maybe, maybe. Pennsylvania? Maybe. Illinois? Hmm. Don't know. That seems weird. Maryland? Okay. Okay. That's historically a blue state, but, like, if you say so, okay. Like, I think Larry Larry Hogan's the governor of Maryland. Like, it, they, they can get a Republican into office there. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see. What are they having them run on? This article is about how they're supporting the far right um, because they think the far right will be easier to defeat in the general. So they think that if you have like a purple district where there's a potential for Dems or the GOP to win, uh, that if you get the crazy Republican to win in the, uh, in the primary, they'll be easier to beat in the general. Uh, it worked great with Trump, right? So yeah, here, hold your, hold your horses. All right, and this is going to get me to the first point. Why didn't it work with Trump? Like, let's, let's, let's just stop there. We'll, we'll come back to you, Vosh. Don't worry. Don't worry. Stopping there for just a second. Why didn't it work with Trump? Well, when we were pied pipering the Republican Party over to Trump, were we pied pipering them on a policy issue or were we pied pipering them on a vibe thing i think the clear argument here especially when you see like how republicans processed it is that trump's a vibe he's a mood he's a modality uh you know he's a way of interacting with people i don't like you you're ugly you're fat like you're dumb i want what i want fuck the lips like you know like whatever she's dumb like, like th that's it's a modality and i think the thought was by the democrats oh people will be so repulsed by a boorish 
crass person who just speaks their mind authentically and it's authentically kind of awful and hard to deal with. And they were like, oh yeah, we can run against that. We can run against that. Um, people will realize that what they need, vibe-wise, are college-educated elite, lives in a gated community, speaks with a prestige, you know, they, they want the Obama-level speechification. Uh, they, they want to see someone who looks like that, in a situation that's a crisis, could become the captain of the ship in, in a pinch, could pilot that airplane and land that airplane and make everyone feel like it's going to be just fine. That's what, like, the Democrats thought they, that you could kind of position someone like that, and they thought Hillary was going to be good at that. Uh, and, and they thought that you could position that against that. You know what? I don't. You know, what What do you think about Mexico? And eh, Mexico's been taking or taking advantage of us for years. Like they thought that that would work. And what they saw in the debate stage between Hillary and Donald Trump was essentially no. Like uh, you, maybe you pulled the Republican, you Pied Pipered them away from the standard got to have polish, got to have prestige, got to love the American flag and apple pie, go to all, and love going to the Iowa Corn Fair and love meeting with all the Baptists and all that stuff that like, that was, I guess, the center thing. And Trump like introduced this like, no, like you just, you know, make jokes and like, you know, if you don't like somebody, just like pick a physical flaw about them and like make a nickname about it. Um, you know, no, Marco Rubio is short, little Marco, uh, it, really, really easy, basic stuff. And it still works. It's not working as well, but like, it's still where they're at. And so what Vosh, um, like I, I think is sort of missing here is that like there's the vibe thing that Trump did and then there's the policy thing that the Democrats are trying to do here and has been done in the past and they're trying to do it on January 6th I would argue and I will support this with numbers here in just a moment that that's the second best policy issue to do it on but up to now um, I actually like this strategy. They are doing these January 6th committees. Uh, they're putting them in prime time. That's getting picked up by late night shows and stuff and news shows uh, that, you know, are Democrat supporting. And that's that's part of the game, baby. And it's getting coverage and like the Republicans look ridiculous because that day was ridiculous because it was a domestic terror attack. And the hearings are still kind of weird because like no one wants to actually call it domestic terror. And no one wants to say that like Josh Halley's fundraising off of domestic terror when he sells mugs like of him doing this. But like that's what's going on here. It's all real weird. Everyone feels real weird about it. And like no one wants to actually be like, actually, you know what? January 6th is awesome. Um, this is clearly an issue that has Republicans on their heels trying to find some like weird way of saying like it was a bad day, but like also please still vote for us, my base, who was participating in that and thinks that this was a stolen election. And the Republicans have been doing a thing that they've always been fond of doing. The Democrats are usually squishy on, which is what I call the, um, oh, we'll be polite, the half out strategy. Um, they don't take it all the way out. Um, and they did this with Obama back 
about a decade ago with the whole birth certificate nonsense. Oh, who is the spearheader of that, by the way? Where, who is the guy who was like always on Fox News and always talking? The, 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 the TV show, too. Uh, anyways, he was on Fox News, as were many Fox News hosts like Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity, too, still on there at the time. And, and the smart radio show host would hashtag just be asking questions about Barack Obama's birth certificate uh, and just kind of floating it out there. And the Democrats never made them commit to it. Yeah, Obama eventually showed his birth certificate. But what I'm saying is, no, 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 make them jump the cliff on this. Do you or don't you believe that Barack Obama is legitimately president of the United States? Make them take an up or down vote on it. Let's see where they lay. Because I think that that would have made them look very silly. And I also think looking forward here, a vote like that would have been very instructive and useful to have on the record. So yeah, like, no, like sometimes you want to take these votes just to have these little moments, these inflection points to go back to. Um, but you have now this January 6th thing, this kayfabe of January 6th, was the election legitimately stolen? And the polling support for this remains terrible. So like, why is it a good idea to get Republican candidates who like keep saying this? Um, let's just real quickly do what we do around here. Kick it onto the internet and let us ask what thinks the 2020 election was stolen. No, most Americans don't believe the 2020 election was stolen. Um, yeah, you had, oh, okay. That's in response to that. Why do so many still believe the election was stolen? Um, I mean, this is an interesting quote. Well, let's see. It's the Hill. Oh, and it's an opinion column. This is going to be, this is going to be crap. Um, two thirds of GOP voters and one third of all voters now believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Okay. That is the formula for doing the Pied Piper strategy. And like, this is why. I think I'm okay with this. You have something that the Republicans are all in on and like, oh, by the way, yes, would it be nice if the Republicans would, as Joe Biden says, come to their senses and realize that like the election was the election and like it's good to protect elections and that this little flimmy flam shit that they're doing right now is like a way of okie doking elections and rigging them. They either know that or they don't care. They either know that or they don't care. So wouldn't it be nice? Yes, but I'm not going to be picking up the guitar again and playing you a little bit of Beach Boys right now because like th this this is just not the way Republican politics goes. Ask my friend, John Kasich and his little hoagie, John Kasich. I, I man, I, it's been so long since I've done the voice uh, that, uh, hello, Steven. Uh, it's been so long since I've done the voice that I, I don't even remember him. He's just like a figment of our imagination now. I love Matt Lewis, uh, you know, friend of the show, friend of the show. I love, love's a strong word. I, you know, reserve it for the cats, my parents and the girlfriend, but um, you know, Matt Lewis is a friend of the show, Too Dumb to Fail, a good book. We talked about it. Matt Lewis said I did a great interview of him on Too Dumb to Fail. Cool. Um, his side lost. They lost going like away. Like even their boy, Dadu Ron Ron Ron, Dadu Ron Ron. Is this the triumph of 
like, is this the triumph of intellectual conservatism? Or is Ron DeSantis, the guy who ran for governor, talking to his kids about, Mr. Trump is wonderful. We're say MAGA. I want baby's first words to be MAGA. Like, who does that guy seem like the intellectual inheritor of? Did the intellectual conservatives win? No, they hope Ron DeSantis will be less goofy, but, like, he's not some triumph of, like, Jonah Goldberg and Matt Lewis's wet dreams. Like, this is... This guy is... Actually, to that point, Goldberg has called him Clown DeSantis in the past. Um, like this, this guy is absolutely a Trumpian. Um, so, going back to Vosh here, like, yeah, all right. So we have overwhelming evidence that, like, the American public, like, less than one in three, and it's basically exclusively Republicans, um, buy this. So now you basically you need to juice your base up. Um, you would need to convince them that, like, if this person's elected, we're going to overturn this election. Good things are going to follow along in this kayfabe. And yeah, yeah, a lot of the Republicans are going along with it. Yeah, a lot of them have been going along with it. Um, not, not enough. Um, I kind of like, especially as you're pouring cold water on it, um, you get it down to like half of Republicans are comfortable with this. Not bad. I don't know. I don't hate it as a strategy. Um, do I trust? I, I will say this before we go back to Bosch, because I'm guessing some of you are like, okay, yeah, but do you really think the Democrats can pull this one off? Ooh, golly, I have my doubts. But like individual campaigns are not the national party. John Fetterman is teaching us things. These candidates, many of whom spread unfounded claims the 2020 election was stolen from former President Donald Trump, will be easier to defeat in a general election. Democratic spending has helped secure Republican nominations and candidates for Illinois and Pennsylvania. You know, to, 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 skip, to skip on doodle a little bit down here, ads purchased by Pritzker, that's a Democrat-aligned ad, you know, you know uh, spending block. Um, allies attacked the more moderate Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin, in the Republican primary and drew attention to the more far-right candidate, State, Sen um, State Senator Darren Bailey. Pritzker's ad buy for the primary was more than triple what Bailey raised for his own campaign. So these Democrats spended th spent three times what this far-right guy was able to spend himself on ads. And that guy, since winning the nomination, went on to say, let's move on after the Aurora shooting. If you were reading along on that article there, that's who that guy is. So, yeah, a comment like that can lose you an election. Picking a dude who is a loose cannon to say something like that absolutely can alter the outcome of a race. These are a case-by-case -case basis. But yes, done in a savvy and smart way with where the Republican electorate is at right now as a vibe post-Trump. But like post-Trump, they can't go back to Trump, but like that's what they do. Like it's it's where their headspace is still at, especially on like the election kayfabe and all of that sort of stuff, gun rights. Um, not doing anything like maybe addressing the scourge that is doors. Um, like that's what they're doing right now. So I don't know. Uh, I think a comment like let's move on from the Aurora shooting and enjoy f July 4th is the type of thing that absolutely can haunt a candidate, especially in the latter stages of the race. And if you know that this person is a bit of a time bomb candidate like Joey Time Bomb, 
like oh yeah like, like let's flip the flip the tables why is it worried about joe biden as a presidential nominee um you know there's two things one too moderate two i've always worried he's gonna say something real dumb or like i this whole thing that he's like really good at like i don't know connecting with people like maybe on an individual basis but like as a public speaker that's never never ever 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 been true um he's you're worried that the guy is gonna say something that'll get him into trouble uh, this is much better to have on the other side of the table coming from your enemies. I see serious utility in this. I, and I've, we've got historical examples here too that, that, that I think will only further bolster that up. But let's hear the man out for a little bit more before we get into my presentation here. Uh. Um, Bailey, that's, that's the crazy, crazy. who was endorsed by Trump, rose to prominence, spended, yeah, rose to prominence in Illinois politic when he co-sponsored a bill that proposed allowing rural Illinois to separate from Chicago and form a new Illinois state. After a 2019 state legislative session over a bill guaranteeing I'm fine Illinois with that if it results in three Illinois, Chicago, vehemently a blue opposed. Illinois, and whatever that is. For having, quote, the gall to bring up the separation of Unironically. church Painted on the door of his campaign bus is the Bible verse, Ephesians 6.10.19, which calls for followers to wear God's armor in a battle against evil rulers. So the Democrat group spent triple what they could raise. Bailey won the nomination with 55.2% of the vote. Although Irvin was leading Bailey in polls as late as May, he came in second with only 18.6% of the vote. So let's talk about this. Um, yeah, okay. So the problem here is that when you do this, you move the Republican constituency in that area further to the right. The effect of those ad buys is to get moderate Republicans to support far-right candidates, which means that the Democrats are literally creating the opposition to democracy. See. Okay, so this is his first major point, and I, I think the theory of the case here is wrong as well, right? Like, the moderates, here's the strategy. You want to get these people to be so cringe that the moderates stay home. They stay home. You turn them off from wanting to vote for this candidate because they are too far outside of what is their acceptable purview. And it's not a large number of Republican votes, but you also don't need that because they have never been a majoritarian party. Like they are, they're an all hands on deck party. Like they need turnout. Um, there are people like my parents where the Republicans can say sufficiently bad things and either my mom is going to flip parties and vote blue and then my dad won't vote or like they just won't vote. Like if they don't like that candidate, they're not gonna vote for them. Abortion is absolutely going to be one of those issues going forward for my mother. And January 6th, like my dad who like, uh, he is what he is, uh, even January 6th, like he recognizes that as a domestic terror attack. And like when we all talked about it as a family that day, like there was no like disagreement of what we saw on the television, like disagreement of like, can you ever vote for Republicans again? 
of course, with your truly going like, no, it's like unconscionable. These guys like are absolutely unrepentant about domestic terror attack. My dad going, man, but, but like, is there a way? Democrats are so great. Um, <clears throat> a little bit of a difference of opinion there. But I mean, not on the Democrats not being so great, but like the idea is that you turn off my parents from voting for them. Um, and which like a person, as we've discussed on the show multiple times, Ted Cruz is like a robot programmed in the factory to get my mom to stay home or vote for the other party. Like, like it, th- this stuff does exist. These voters do exist. Um, in a lot of cases they're not, they're fairly low information. The parents are guilty of charge of that, but they are not foolish. They have a way of thinking about stuff and like domestic terror and abortion rights are issues that absolutely are redlining certain Republicans. Uh, you, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't go overseas and die for my country to watch a bunch of fucking rednecks storm the Capitol and attack the democracy on that day. That's the Republican you're trying to turn off here. So like, yeah, like you get a wackadoo in that district and that dude, that ex-military guy who is now, you know, trying to figure it out here in his mid-30s, mid-40s, um, he votes, uh, but he hears about this guy and goes, eh, you know, I don't know, it's a midterm anyways, I'll just stay home. It can happen. Like, I, I really, the Pied Piper strategy is not about dragging the entire party to the right. It's essentially breaking off, you, you're getting the crazies and you're getting them to dance to a little crazy tune. They hear the music in their heads. And the rest of them are like, whoa, oh, huh. I'm not flipping parties, but I ain't joining that party. And you cleave them. And I think that there are a meaningful number of Republicans right now available to be cleaved uh, with Roe versus Wade being overturned and the January 6th hearings being a real slam dunk. Uh, If Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney have any utility at all, it is messaging to those people. Um, And I have expressed my doubts about their utility, but like, this is my last defense of the Democrats here. And I, I feel weird like having to go this deep on it, but like they're doing this on a multi-level approach. You got to give them some credit here. Like there are certain things that like the Biden administration's piss poor at, like the Kamalese dialect that like every administration from a official from uh, Jean-Pierre to uh, Walensky to Kamala herself. Like there, there's this like weird, you know, actually the nature of the thing is actually quite transformational. And I think we will see that the thing will be actually quite good when it transforms in a transformational way. Like that Kamalese thing that she does is really something. And it's it's a traveling dialect that is finding its way around the administration. But this, this is like the congressional stuff. This is the midterm races. They're doing it at a district level. They've got the messaging on point on a congressional level. Like it doesn't, it's weird because you just don't associate any level of competency generally with the Democrats. This is not a case where I can say definitively they're being incompetent. Nah, they're being fine. They, they, solid seven and a half out of 10, like, like seven, eight. Like it's not bad of a strategy. I, I really don't think so. Democrats and liberals in general don't understand basic like real politics the way Republicans and fascists generally tend to. Liberals are unique in this respect, by the way, a unique defect in their brains that prevents them from understanding this. Um, but the, the, the Democrat, you know, this is not new. The Clinton campaign did this back then. This is a longstanding tactic. But right now we're on the precipice of democracy in this country being overturned. We're right now seeing like we're we're at the, the twilight. I mean, we're, we're, the sun is setting and they're still doing this. You know, our only hope for moving the Republicans, not the 
party, but the voters, away from the insane path that they've been sent on through people like the individuals the Democrats are buying ads for is to keep them from going that far right. You want them to be moderate because moderates can potentially be swayed. The Democrats are thinning the pool of moderate. Can they? I, I, like, what, what is the evidence we have of that? Susan Collins? Liz Cheney? Adam Kinzinger? Uh, and remember that essentially we have Susan Collins because we can't get a Sarah Gideon, the $100 million baby. Uh, we can't get her over the finish line. No, the goal is actually not moderates. I, it, like Maine's a great example. If Gideon was running against a far right person, May, you know, LePage, yeah, he won statewide or whatever. Um, Collins, I mean, Gideon probably would beat a far right candidate because of what Maine is. Um, Kinzinger is in a district that would be a blue district. Liz Cheney's a weirdo case, but like, is Liz Cheney good? Like, are, are we really there? Are, have we have we really gotten there? Is she really good? Uh, and then, lastly, moderate Republicans. What are they? Ben Sass? Uh, I mean, seriously, like, like, like Liz Cheney. Uh, you'd probably be thinking, oh, Liz Cheney. No, she would be like a liberal Republican. She would be like the liberals. Ben Sass is basically the middle of the party, not. Josh Halley or any of them crazy, you know, seems reasonable, seems likable enough, kind of personable in, in his own little Ben Sass way. Do we need a lot of them? I don't know. Like, I, I, I just, I think, like, the way our party system works right now, uh, in, in an ideal world, yeah, like, the polar, like, center of the Republican Party would drift back to the center. But, like, that actually meaningfully requires de-radicalizing the right wing. I have no idea how to do that. I'm not tasking Vosh with that either. We can't even get into how to do that. But uh, until you actually r reduce the numbers of right wingers and de-radicalize them and de-marginalize them... Or not, de, de, not, not demarginalize, demobilize them. That's fine. The last thing, though, is here's the final problem. This party is not big enough for either one of those wings to stay home. And, like, people hate losing in politics. They really do. Even, like, if they can lump it one term or whatever, like Biden, uh, you know, like what a lot of Republicans are doing with Biden. Um, you know, like my parent, my mom would be like, I don't like Biden, but like, you know, I wanted to see Trump lose. Cool. Great. And she didn't vote for Trump. So like, cool. Um, they don't want to do that for like a decade. They don't want to do that for like whatever length of time it takes for them to de-radicalize. Um, I, I mean, I just don't see this happening. Um, th what was required here, you know, and, and this is, I guess my last in defense of the Dems. Boy, this is a rough. This is a rough show for me. Um, this is the Republicans' job. It, it, it's Mitch McConnell's job. It's like the congressional Republicans' job after January six to say like, no, this is bullshit. Vote to impeach Trump so that he like absolutely is removed from the conversation of being able to run for office ever again. He can't run for president again. If they had voted to impeach and remove him. Um, that would have disqualified him from being able to run again, which would have made a clean break for the party, and they would have moved themselves back. Like, it's not our job to fix these wounded birds because, like, there's just... 
And and I don't know if we ever could have, but whatever that window was, it's passed. It's almost a weird analogy here. It's almost like Syria. I don't know that we could have fixed Syria in the last decade, but I definitely know that we arrived at a point where we couldn't anymore. Um, and that's how it feels with this Republican Party thing. I, it feels like you want to say there was a point in time where, like Syria, like there was a way to sort of stop this. Um, and no, I don't know that there was. I think it. I think it's always been what it's going to be because like this is this is sort of the logical end state of decades of pro-liferism um coupled with decades of neoconservatism and then that final state trump when the Repo- i mean the time to stop this honestly was when trump was out there selling his bullshit about the birth certificate they should have been laughing at him they should they, they had their news channels they were more powerful than he was they had all the time in the world to make fun of him and marginalize him but they used him they loved him like Fox loved them, and yes, yes, the mainstream media did too. But like, so much of this is it—it's just them. And then and my last point here is, what's Matt Lewis's book? Too dumb to fail. He's writing about this trajectory that they're on. I, this, this to me, and that that book is now like eight years old. This is fate accompli. This is what they are, and maybe what they were always destined to be. in the GOP by pulling more people over the far right in the inept belief that being extreme will make it easier for them to be beaten in the general like that worked in 2016. I mean really think about this here right we're we're not just talking about like uh you know the short-term potential of getting an easier win against an extremist we're talking about the long-term fact that when you prompt Republican voters in an area to vote for an extremist candidate, you are exposing them to an entry point in a cycle that will lead to them supporting the extremist candidates forever. Like, what do you think happens after you get the Republicans in a given district to vote for the crazy, let's separate Illinois from Chicago? Okay, so this is a point that he makes that I think is really interesting, and I think I basically agree with it. That, like, the one downside of the Pied Piper strategy that like is why you cannot keep going to this trough too often in the same in the same district in the same district in the same district is yes you start to program the electorate to vote for the crazies because they got nothing else they're the only game in town um and it's like it's like a gateway drug like and also a bit of a sunk cost fallacy thing that kicks in where like they voted for the crazy person and the crazy person gets into office and they're like oh that's my guy fuck fuck he's crazy but that's my guy uh and, and then they start doubling down on it i get it i get it like that's that's actually an interesting argument is it compelling enough for me to say the democrats shouldn't be doing this and i think here's where we can um maybe go ahead and make the break from voss let's, let's give him like one more downbeat and then and then we can go ahead and make the vo- make the break here go uh we put on god's army to battle evil church and state should be unionized like like uh, brought together you know if somebody votes for those folks who do you think they're going to vote for in 2024 you think they're going to go back to being moderate like do you think they're going to they're gonna like, 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 oh yeah, it didn't work. I mean, this is the difference in our the- in the theory of our case. Just quickly, I don't think those moderate people vote for the one-time wingnut. 
I do share this concern that if that a wing nut is fielded two or three times, they'll eventually hold their nose and vote for him going, there's only like one game in town. Like, why are we always running crazy people in this district? But I just don't like, as I cited earlier, my parents are not like every swing voter or anything like that. That's not the point here. It, it It's just, I think the move here is much more likely that you stay home it's much more likely that you stay home than it is that like you start getting conditioned to vote for crazy people. I, I think you join the majority of the country and you just don't vote. That is the default position. Let's never forget that. That, that as I told Sean Frieder years ago on this show, the, the real battle is getting me to put my pants on to go and go to the ballot box. Like It's not like, who am I going to vote for? It's am I going to actually go out and do it? that one time the democrats maybe got like an edge win over an extremist candidate that we backed and we wholeheartedly supported we're just going to go back to like neocon tier shit what do they think is going to happen this is a bad take boss you don't understand the difference between primary voters and general voters primary voters are going to be more extreme in that primary the purpose of the ad buys is to move people who are going to vote in the general as well nobody votes in the primary then doesn't vote in the general that's insane maybe like five people you know if they were going to vote for the moderate candidate. but I, I mean, if they voted for the moderate candidate because they were legitimately worried about the psycho guy who might win the nomination and then the psycho guy won the nomination and they didn't vote for the psycho guy the first time, this is where the sunk cost fallacy actually kicks in in reverse. And this is where I think Vosh is missing the thread. If you went out in the primary the first time, right? And you were like, I'm kind of worried about, you know, Representative Dinkus and, you know, his position that, like, <laughs> I I can't wait to see all the rape babies fill this district. That alarms me. And they go and vote for a moderate, normal Republican to try to thwart Dinkus, right? Okay, if they do that and Dinkus wins they're probably not going to vote for Dinkus. The, really, at this point, the debate is, am I going and voting for the other person because I'm worried enough about Dinkus that I just like legitimately want to make sure that this person doesn't get in? Or am I just sitting back and going, it's your fight, Dinkus. Um, I, I would argue that that's the mindset of that moderate combative primary voter yes he, he's right it, it, someone who's voting in the primary cares but you know care can very quickly turn to disgust i'm a democrat i know all about this are then convinced to vote for the far right candidate you have now entrenched far right beliefs in the mind of that constituency Democrats don't understand don't this because Democrats don't believe in ideology. To the liberal, there is no such thing as ideology. That's why they seem to think that things will always work out in their favor no matter what happens. No, and, and see, this is, this is the last point. This is the last. I, I can't stress this enough. Um, to, to say, especially for me, that there's no ideology is a disgusting, disgusting accusation. As we know, true novism is only represented here on this show all principles and viewpoints are guided by true novism novism is true to know is to truth to truth is to know there's ideology here the ideology is that we can look into these numbers and, and kind of put together a cogent case on whether things do or don't work that 
most stuff is actually knowable. Um, and, and even if it's not entirely knowable, it is generally possible to come up with a good guess. So here's my good guess. And we're going to get into the numbers as to why I think, think this. My good guess is that if the Democrats, and yeah, you can say I'm loaded up on the front here, fine. If the Democrats are sound with their campaign, and I'm just going to say above average with their competency. Average would be fine. The one-two punch of abortion radicalization by the Republicans and also January 6th election kayfabin by the Republicans is something that the Democrats can go to the electorate and go, hey, hey, I know gas prices suck. I know monkeypox. I know we haven't beaten COVID. I know we haven't protected Roe versus Wade. I know Joe Biden's really old. He probably shouldn't run again. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. They crazy. You can't, you can't, I hear all those problems. You can't reasonably tell me that those people got the answers. They don't. I'm still working on it, but do you trust me to come up with these answers or crazy Joe over there? Um, that's not bad, especially as crazy Joe's like, yeah, right, babies. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go, Brandon. You know, like, uh, they don't have a good answer on anything right now, whether it's Ukraine and, and like, I mean, they're, they're sort of ambivalence on Ukraine, which, like, look, America's positions on this stuff have been pretty subpar, but... Uh, if you're like, eh, well, you know, I think we should just let Russia do what they're going to do to get oil prices down. Like, that's not the winning answer right now. Uh, they don't have the winning answer on Roe versus Wade. If they, it, I mean, they can't even say that they thought the court decided wrongly. Um, I mean, the best polling answer they've got right now is about half a respondent say that it should be left to the states, but that's kind of squishy because uh, that involves a lot of blue state respondents going, yeah, well, like in the wake of the fact that you can't actually do it, these Republicans, yes, I, I would much rather take my chances with the state's regime. I mean, that's how I'm going to feel when I move to New Mexico. Like, yeah, no, leave it to New Mexico because the national Republicans apparently shove their thumbs up their ass when they think about any problems in this world. Um, like, like they don't, they don't have really answers so yeah like, like you're gonna get that response that's the best one they got they can't sit there and tell you roe was wrong or that the overturn was wrong they they can't tell you that like abortion rights need to be codified protecting birth control it, like they have none of those things to say so i actually like that um let's get into these numbers here because a mistake that the democrats have historically made is that they have not talked about abortion rights because, as we've talked about on this show a number of times here, they love the safe, legal, and rare framework. And they have not talked about the Supreme Court um, because, again, they, are, they were always scared about talking about abortion and guys like Joe Biden have always been, like, splitting the difference. It, like, rose the law of the land, it's a compromise, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, like, I don't, I'm personally pro-choice. That, this is a hard one for me. I go to church, Jack. You know, these, like, long-winded answers. These long-winded answers. Um, Democrats have never liked talking about the Supreme Court. Hillary Clinton should have talked about it a lot more. Um, she talked about it some. Um, but, like, Democrats should have been conditioning their people and their electorate, uh, as Vosh is sort of saying like this, they should have been conditioning their electorate on the Supreme Court thing all the time. Like, I mean, if, if someone ever said back in the last decade, can't find them now with the search team, uh, that the Supreme Court was a hostage-taking situation, oh, how that take is aged poorly. Um, you know, like, when, you know, and, and, like, yeah, I've said this in the past, but I've also said this, like, in a broader context, when people are like, no, the Supreme Court's like a fake situation. No, it was quite real, as we found out here. 
let's look at like a couple of charts here. These are real interesting. Um, this is a comparison between presidential performance and abortion views. More states or states more pro-life or more pro-choice than suggested by the presidential race margins. In Texas, plus seven. So like, yeah, the Republican wins, but there are plus seven who are actually pro-choice who are swinging and voting Republican. At least they have been. Um, in New Mexico, um, actually, there are even more pro-choice people, um, but they still vote Republican. Like these pro-choice Republicans definitely exist is one thing you can totally glean from this chart. In Arizona, it's plus 15. Um, in Wyoming, it is plus 34. North Dakota, plus plus 27. Um, now, this is, again, presidential performance and abortion views. But like what you see is the trend is very simple across the country. Um, with the exception of Louisiana, um, <laughs> which, think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. It's oh, Louisiana, um, and California, which makes sense in completely different ways. And then I guess the weird outlier, and this that sort of explains the Larry Hogan thing. Maryland is your other outlier state. That's how like how's the Larry Hogan survive in Maryland? He's able to play on abortion here. Basically across the country, no one else is. Um, this to me is 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 real useful stuff. Um, Oklahoma really stands out on this map. Um, and, you know, even these Midwestern states, this is tough. You've got, you know, the blue wall of the old blue wall here at this point, uh, pretty tough Michigan, um, you know, plus 11. This I think allows Democrats to really shore up things pro-choice or pro-life. This is just straight raw pro-choice pro-life boy. This is not an electoral college map that wins a lot of races for the Republicans is all I am saying. Did, do I think that this is where it is going to go next election? Fuck no. No, of course not. I'm not saying that. No, 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 man. Come on. Like, no, like plus 30 for Nevada. Come on. No, no. I mean, even flipping Texas this soon. Probably not. Uh, but what stands out to me here, plus 16 in the do Ron 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 state down there, uh, Florida, that, that one is tough. You can see why Republicans are really nervous about Georgia and South Carolina and Virginia as well, or Georgia and North Carolina. Um, and, you know, Virginia kind of slipping, slipping out their way. Conversely, why is it so hard to get Joe Manchin to be good on this stuff? Well, he's plus 23. Uh, red for pro-life. Uh, you know, like he's doing a dance. It, West Virginia is one of the most pro-life states in the country. I guess this kind of gets to the point, like, are the Democrats wasting their time defending Joe Manchin's seat when they should have just been attacking Susan Collins in Maine, where it's plus 27? Um, especially now that she has voted for Kavanaugh. Like, I mean, if I were the Democrats in Maine, I would basically like be super cutting Susan Collins. I know best speech, um, like, and just putting it up there and going like, she's a morality scold. She knows nothing. Um, like this, this to me is the way to do this. Um, since the Supreme Court came down, we talked about these numbers last time, though. I, I mean, like, what is the slice of pie where this is gettable? Um, it is in 30% of the Republican electorate, including 16% that disapprove. That is three in 20 Republicans um, who you can probably make a pitch to stay home. 
Um, you know, and there's even a couple, there's some of those conservatives, probably not enough to make conservatives stay home, but, um, moderate and liberal Republicans. Yeah. They ain't vibing on this. Um, there's just not that many of them in the party. And, and I, I think this is the mistake that I think Vosh is making. This is the mistake that, um, never Trumpers made. Um, this is the mistake. God help me. A lot of libs make. I'm not calling them a lib. I'm not calling them a lib. Um, true novism. True novism does not engage in such slanders as that. Um, that's part of my ideology. Uh, but um, I think the case here is fairly solid that uh, this can work. All right. So now, what would push this argument over the cliff? Right. Like, what, 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 would, what would just be a caduce? is if there was a high-profile race within the last decade. Like, let's make it a little bit more challenging. Not even House of Representatives. So, like, governor or senator's race, where essentially the Pied Piper strategy was deployed, and it worked. Um, this is just water. About to have to talk about someone I don't really like. So, excuse me. This is, this is all I have. It's not good, but I need it because we have to talk about, we have to talk about, hold on, hold on. We have to talk about Claire McCaskill. We have to talk about Claire McCaskill. She's, she's horrible. She's like the worst. She's like not good, um, but we have to talk about her. So a decade ago, like you probably know Claire McCaskill cause she's horrible. Um, and because she is, and she's very bad, and she's on TV a lot, and they like her on television, and they talk about her all the time. Um, about a decade ago, Todd Aiken, rest in peace, Todd Aiken, dead at 74 last year, a strong abortion opponent, um, was running against Claire McCaskill in her Senate re-election. Now, what is interesting about this is that Essentially, Aiken had arrived at this nomination by the thumb of Claire McCaskill. He is on TV. He's actually on a, if you've ever seen the classic faked CNN Gulf War report, uh, it's, it's great. If you've never seen it, go, go outside some time. It's great. They, at one point, they're like, they have like a fake scud missile and they're like smoking weed. In the, I mean, uh, like, I kind of wish I was like there, like, but, but like it also not good to misinform the American public, but like looks kind of like they were having a blast. Uh, <laughs> the scud missile. Um, Charles Jaco is the anchor on that. He's actually the guy interviewing, uh, Todd Aiken here, uh, in, in 2013, 2014, 2012. When was he up for election? Like, why do I have this wrong? Um, so, do, 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 do. He ran in 2012. There we go. There we go. He gave up a safe seat to do it, too. Uh, that's the best part. Is like, McCaskill, like, he wanted to do this. And then McCaskill's like, okay, sure. I'm into this. I'm into this. We have a plan for you. Well, let's fast forward real quick and then rewind. So, he's on the Jayco show. And he gets asked about abortion and allowing abortion for women who have been raped. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like something that could happen now, 10 years later? 
Charles, um, and then Todd Aiken said, well, you know, if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. And legitimate rape, uh, that's probably ringing a bell, became a bit of a meme. His comments sparked an outcry. Mitt Romney rebuked Aiken and said his campaign would allow abortions in such cases. Um, this is the other missing piece of the puzzle from like Vosh's formulation of what needs to happen. You don't, yeah, Mitt Romney still exists, but like Mitt Romney's a marginal figure. At this point, he was the guy who managed to win the votes of a majority of Republicans. Um, yeah, they were worried he was a little too moderate, but like he won at that point. Um, this is just a different era. So go into some numbers here. You guys like numbers? I like numbers. Everybody, actually, I said earlier I hate math. So like, here's the thing: I don't want to hold math against numbers. You know, that's big of me. That's big of me. Todd Aiken, the embattled Republican Senate candidate whose remarks on legitimate rape prompted the calls for him to exit the Missouri race, is now 10 points behind his rival, according to a Rasmussen poll released on Thursday. Poll found 63% of voters now view him unfavorably, a major blow to the candidate who has hemorrhaged support from his party, uh, hemorrhaged in the British spelling, says his remark on Sunday. Only last week he was leading by nine points, according to one poll. You can see illustrated here right where that break point happens. Hey, what day do you think it happened on? Do you think it was like somewhere around, I don't know, August 20th or so? Because at that point, Aiken is like neck and neck with McCaskill, and then McCaskill's up 10. Um, up six, up six, up eight. Uh, even as the race closes in, she's still in pretty good position. Final results, McCaskill plus 15. Outperforming even the most robust polls. God help me. This strategy 100% worked. Of those who responded to that poll that uh, was done by Rasmussen, which is a Republican pollster, so the Republicans are going to answer it, uh, 47% said they now have a very unfavorable view of Aiken. 16% said they had a somewhat unfavorable view of him. And when asked if he should drop out, 42% said no, and 41% said yes. Those are magic numbers. Those are beautiful things. That is the type of shit that gets people to not put on their pants and go vote for you on election day. The Missouri seat was an important one for Republicans because it was seen as one of the most winnable for them. And they did ultimately win it. This is the other part. Claire, I don't like you talking about this part. This is the other part about this strategy. Yeah, the Republicans did win with a more moderate guy. Fist up in the air, Josh Howley, um, who who is smarter and better and and like able to get through it. And like, unfortunately for us, the electorate does not see what you and I, who are listening to the show, see on a regular basis. That these Republicans are like the that there is not that much difference between Josh Howley and a Todd Aiken. Um, Josh Howley is just a little bit smarter at how he does his Todd Aikeny things. Um, that is all that happens. Um, yeah, we had a Christian Scientist monitor poll here. And criticism of Aiken's remarks cloud his U.S. Senate bid until the end, making it a symbol of how Republicans could fumble away races. They had a good chance of winning with a candidate deemed too far to the right. Aiken's campaign initially said he misspoke, and then Aiken later said that he was wrong. 
Aiken faced pressure from the national GOP to withdraw and allow the state party to pick a replacement. He refused and ended up losing the race by nearly 16 percentage points. Yet other Republican officials and office holders across the U.S. occasionally echoed his remark, signaling how conservative some of the party's base had become on the issue. And that's really the point here. Did Todd Aiken drag this party to the right? No, they already were like this. That McCaskill basically got them, got this guy to go mask off. And when they go full mask off, the American people, I guess to their slight credit, do actually revolt in disgust to this. Republicans took ads as McCaskill's attempt to win the GOP primary. An autobiography that McCaskill published in 2015 said she also tried to boost Aiken's campaign by urging it through back channels to resume airing a television ad featuring an endorsement from Mike Huckabee. McCaskill's moves paid off. Uh, Aiken prevailed in an eight-person GOP uh, field with 36% of the vote, like which is very Trumpy numbers. Like when these Trumpy guys do this, they do it 35% of the vote, 36% of the vote. Is that a little scary? Yeah, I know. I know the history of this. I know the history of this, but still real interesting. How I helped Todd Aiken win so I could beat him later. Um, God help me. We, we're going to just read a little bit. I can't, I can't do this forever. I can't do this forever. I can't keep telling you that Claire McCaskill like did a good cause like she almost always does a bad and I hate her. Um, like she's basically reverse Susan Collins, but uh, Collins, but like, like, okay, let's, let's read this. It was August 7th, 2012. I was standing in my hotel room in Kansas city about to shotgun a beer for the first time in my life. God, Jesus, you don't live. I had just made the biggest gamble of my political career, a $1.7 million gamble, and it had paid off. Running for election in the U.S. Senate in Missouri, I had successfully manipulated the Republican primary so that in the general election, I'd face the candidate I was most likely to beat. And this is how I promised my daughters we would celebrate. Let me go back to the beginning. During the first week of July 2012, one month before Republicans nominated their candidate for U.S. Senate, I directed my campaign to go into the field and take a poll of Republicans in Missouri. This is a first for me. Never before had I paid $40,000 to a pollster to find out what was on the minds of voters who were never going to vote for me. But this election called for an unusual strategy. Our poll questioned Republicans about three people seeking to run against me. At the onset, businessman John Brunner led at 39% with Todd Aiken at 17 and Sarah Steelman at 15. Then we gave the people we were polling a synopsis of each message, and the results were fascinating. Aiken's message essentially stated that he was one of the most conservative members of Congress, had consistently voted against government spending and debt, had opposed the Wall Street bailouts, the federal stimulus, and the rescue of automobile companies, had voted no on Obamacare, was the founding member of the Tea Party Caucus. Uh, he promised to restore faith in God as the center of public life in America and had consistently voted to defend the sanctity of human life. The other candidates' campaign themes were also fairly and fully described. Brunner was a job creator and an ex-Marine, and Steelman was fighting to end the status quo. The sample of Republican voters was then pulled again, and what we saw is that the candidates' messages drastically changed the complexion of the contest. Aiken now came in at 38% and Brunner at 16% while Steelman was at 15 Aiken's narrative could make him the winner among the people most likely to vote in the Republican primary and maybe, just maybe, a loser among moderate Missourians. So, like, it's a one-two punch. I mean, like, this is pretty interesting stuff, right? Like, 
they realized that like the winning message in the primary was essentially I'm as conservative as I'll get out. I'm as conservative as conservative can be. Vote for me. I'm conservative. This is the Republican psyche. This is what they want. They want the most conservative conservative who's ever conservative. Um, they don't want a moderate. Libs, the Dems, they fetishize this falsy walsy balance stuff. Matt Iglesias is a liberal. Uh, Chris Saliza is a liberal. They like that shit. The never Trumpers are liberals. They like that shit. They don't vote for Biden, but they actually love all that Libby centrist shit. That's left of center brain. You want someone who can appeal to the masses and connect with people and stuff, not energize your base. Does it work? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't seem to work as well as it should, given that we have the numbers. Um, like, like you know, I, it, whereas they go to their base and like they're winning sometimes when they shouldn't. Maybe there's something that's energizing the base thing. Um, but like, what she basically figured out is like this is this is what people want. It's a three-way primary of equally viable candidates, but a subset of energized people with strong religious convictions and aversion to gay people, public schools, and immigrants and reproductive choice could help elect someone like Todd Akin. This is where they're still at. What Claire McCaskill discovered then is like where they're at now and what Trump knew then. Like This is who they have been for a long time now. Um, what was happening in the Mitt Romney era for those of us who like lived through it was that like the Republicans wanted someone more conservative than Mitt Romney, not Ron Paul, but like someone more, it was basically like the Bernie Sanders, uh, like they didn't want him. Um, but they didn't trust that Mitt Romney was sufficiently conservative enough, which is why he needed to have Paul Ryan. Um, I, like there was, they wanted an arch conservative, um, uh, that's where their head was at. Tom Kylie, my pollster, turned up some findings that seemed crazy to me. For example, less than one quarter of the likely Republican primary voters believed that Barack Obama had been born in the United States. How they didn't make more hay off of this and make the Republicans have to commit to the kooky position that Obama's an atomic communist from the planet Kenya um, and that he shouldn't be president and we need to impeach him because he's a secret Kenyan. Uh, like, like I, I wish, I wish they had. I wish they had. Um, these voters could help tip a Republican primary to an arch conservative. I love that we call them arch conservatives, not just like fascists, like, but this is Claire McCaskill, but that conservative would have a hard time winning the state. Yes. It was a three-way primary of equally viable candidates. Um, all right. Anyways, I considered to be, uh, whether it be useful to help Aiken spread his message, keeping in mind that he was the weakest fundraiser. Um, his track record made him my ideal opponent. Many of his votes in Congress contradicted his claims of being a fiscal conservative. No one cares about that shit, Claire. Only you care about that. Um, like, yeah, she's like citing where he was like, you know, squishing out stuff. Like, he voted for the stimulus. That, like, again, you're not. I mean, that could hurt you with the, the things that she thinks are going to hurt him with conservatives are like, I, I, I mean, things that led to a moderate so you're saying when push comes to shove he's less conservative than he like he doesn't actually stick to this like radical right-wing shit uh well like like he, he waffled on the stimulus package like oh i don't know um that doesn't hurt him mm. what does are his extreme positions on social issues and ridiculous public statements um for example 
He sponsored an amendment that would define life as beginning at conception, therefore outlawing common forms of birth control. He voted against the repeal of the military's don't ask, don't tell legislation. When the Affordable Care Act was being debated, he stood on the House floor and asked for God's help in keeping the nation from socialized medicine. In 2008, he claimed in a House floor speech that it was common practice for doctors to conduct abortions on women who were not actually pregnant. He had made speeches calling for America to pull out the United Nations and claiming that the government had a bunch of socialists in the Senate and a commie in the White House. This is every Republican candidate we have ever dealt with. Like, this is Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is Lauren Boebert. I mean, it's not every Republican candidate we've ever dealt with, but like this breed of Republicans still exists, will always exist, has always existed, took control of the party, wanted to take control in 2012, couldn't find a consensus guy to do it with, but like they wanted the power and they finally got it four years later. So yeah, like, no, she like figured it out. Um, th- this is the guy. He he's perfect for them. He's what they want. He just isn't charismatic. So when he put his foot in his mouth. I mean, if you haven't looked up who Todd Aiken is at this point, go look at a picture of him. I mean, look, look at a younger version of him, even if you want, like before all the spots. Uh, you know, no, he's not charismatic. Donald Trump. I hate it. I hate saying it. He's funny. Like, like the problem with like Todd Aiken is like he's not. Um, when they pied pipered the Republicans, they pied pipered to over to Trump. They pied pipered them over to a charismatic guy. Todd Aiken is not charismatic at all. Um. So you guys basically know the story from here. I mean, you you can go ahead and read the rest of this. McCaskill doesn't add by. Aiken wins. Aiken runs. Says the legitimate rape comments. Loses by sixteen points. So, can this work? Yeah. And we are in the perfect political climate where it can work. So, I would say to Oliver Willis and Bosch, and, and they're like, the, again, not the only two people who are um, believers of, of this take, um, that, yeah, like, no, actually, this is a very viable strategy. This can totally work. Um, and it works if you work it, not to sound like Al-Anon, um, although I, I like to say it works if you work it and then always finish it off with not to sound like Al-Anon. So like, maybe I do want to sound like Al-Anon. Maybe that's what I'm going for. I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that I think we've reached the end of this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. I have one last footnote, I guess, to kind of support this up, um, which is I, I don't have the full articles available for it, but like the right now. The Republicans are in Congress, and what are they trying to do? They are trying to put the brakes on this runaway trolley car of their political agenda. Between January 6th and the abortion stuff, they know that this Supreme Court thing's a bit of a runaway train. So they're trying to get support. Like That's why there's this effort to get 10 votes for the Republicans to go like, Hey, whoa, we're not... Hashtag not all Republicans. We're not all like that. We're not all like that. Some of us voted for January 6th. Some of us voted on, on the abortion th- or on, on gay marriage. Um, and there are also a number of Republicans who are not in safe districts. They, they, they wouldn't be trying to get 10 Republican votes on this right now. It's like not about the filibuster. They're tr- the Republicans are trying to get 10 Republican votes on this right now because they're worried. They're worried that they really can be Pied Pipered this time around. That's what I think the takeaway is on the attempt to get gay uh, marriage legislation passed through Congress right now and to try to check the Supreme Court.
I don't think you should think that they've had a change of heart or that the moderates taking over. Fear, the uh, amygdalic response of the Republican brain is kicking in. Uh, and we're getting into the fall campaign season. That is going to do it for this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. If you liked the show, uh, if you've never listened to the show before, uh, please consider subbing up over the Patreon. Patreon.com slash DWATG. I put out an extra episode a month. Uh, Patreon supporters also get other bonuses, again, for even just the entry-level subscription. Buck a show. Best deal in radio. Uh, in these inflationary economic times as I, I remember they used to say uh, during the 2008 financial stuff um, in these economic times you need something that you know you can trust and that's a dollar and that's this podcast that that's that's what the pitch is so please please go to patreon.com slash dwatg did i mention i lost my job i, I mean i know i it comes up every couple of years but like that's how jobs are people um you know i lost my part-time job here so like yeah if you could support the show right now that'd be awesome i will be back on my feet again at some point um subs come and go i understand that too if you haven't subbed up in a while though this is me asking you maybe an extra buck right now if you could if you would if you can afford it um and if you can um, i'm also offering music classes at a discounted rate um uh, if you've ever been interested in getting a music lesson from your boy i am now doing group music lessons through zoom and they are discounted for patreon subscribers so if you go to patreon.com dwatg you can read all about it that's on the free side um and if you sub up uh you can absolutely get your monies back in terms of the the class presentation and stuff like that i have it priced so that um it ultimately works out better for you uh as my way of saying thanks i i really do appreciate you guys supporting me um, Twitter was not bought by Elon Musk so I'm still there at DWATG please uh, go and follow the show there and um, if you've got any questions or comments please feel free to leave them on the Patreon page or you can always email me as some of y'all do um, if, if it's a good thing I'll get into it or like you know if like a well written thing like you know that like you know, Chris you are wonderful you know, I, I, your glow I like when you don't shave like it really just does a thing uh whatever it is um yeah no i like all of them i you know i'll read them we can get into it on the next show here i want to thank you guys so much for listening uh i really do appreciate it um one thing that has always been constant as my non-owned jobs have been coming and going is is one i'm working at these non-owned things less and less all the time um, not as fast as I'd like getting a little older than I was kind of hoping to be, you know, at this, this stage of the game, but you know what? Less all the time. Like, you know, the last couple of years here, I've only had to be doing a side gig for 20 hours a week. That's cool. That's cool. Um, that means half the time I own me, uh, you know, like that's great that I've never didn't have half ownership before. And, and like, you can see the difference. I know you can. Um, but you know, uh, the one thing that's been constant is I've had this podcast. Um, that you, you guys, I mean, even the lessons and stuff. Um, that's new. Uh, the girlfriend, she, she's new. Uh, you know, the cats. Some of them are new. Chesterfield cat feels like a constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hazy the cat over there in the corner, still, still alive and ticking. But like, I, I've learned um, to to take the the things that are here. Not for granted, but uh, with gratitude. And I just want to thank all of you for being here um, and for listening to the show because 
if it wasn't still doing numbers, I wouldn't still be doing it. I'd do something else. All right. So anyways, enough, enough, enough uh, warm squishies. Let's call it a day for now. Don't worry about the government. It's an ostensibly weekly podcast. I know I'm going to get back to saying that because it's ostensibly going to be weekly again. Until the next one. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.